I interest you in a stamp? Yeah, give me a stamp. Oh. No, give me a purple one. Oh, I'm sorry we haven't any purple ones. I could uh, paint one for you. I don't want a painted one. person hasn't got any rights in this country anymore. The government even tells you what color stamps you gotta buy. That's the Democratic Party for you. I've written to Washington about it. What do you want to write to Washington for? He's dead. <laughs> How much are your stamps? Three cents. All right, give me one. Oh, thank you. No, don't give me that dirty one. Give me a clean one. Give me the one out of the middle. Look at them, madame. Have you ever in your entire life seen anything so beautiful? I'm sorry, I don't know anything about stamps. This is the gentle art of philately, otherwise known as stamp collecting. Here's a pile of stamps carefully culled from swap meets and garage sales. Rupert, what are you thinking of? Oh, I was just thinking of all the years I've wasted collecting stamps. Oh, like stamp collecting. Now, that's all right. That's quite a nice hobby, that. Yeah, but it's not enough. Don't you understand? I'm lonely. I'm so terribly lonely. All right, Homer. You beat those stamp Nazis with good old-fashioned American complaining. Oh, if it weren't for you, we'd be at the mercy of weekend philatelists. You know, why didn't you just say stamp collectors? Because I'm tired of dumbing myself down for you. From Spain and two from Japan I got a couple from Israel and Azerbaijan I got a plenty from Poland but none from Sudan Or from Fiji or Uzbekistan Stamp collecting happens when we dream together Live from the Stamp Show here today, Large Cat Rescue Where we are looking for Carol Baskin's husband this is the award-winning stamp show here today, episode number 256. Brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center, a nonprofit 501c3 corporation for the advancement of philately. This is the world, including Tom. And Cash. And Scott. I guess and everybody Dan. else is missing in the hatching. And Becca. And Wayne. Tony. And we have quite the cast today yeah tony uh we've been uh, talking about you for about two years you're finally on why don't you give everybody just like a couple sentences of who you are great my name's tony mancuso i've got a small stamp concern called barney stamps i'm just online at uh ebay and hip stamp i've always enjoyed the podcast and i'm uh really pleased you asked me to uh, be on thank you so much And today we're having Wayne Youngblood as well, and we will be talking about writing a philatelic article for Linz or the AP or Kelleher Connections or whatever else you might be uh, wanting to write an article for. Wayne, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself before we get started? Alrighty. <clears throat> well, I'm a lifelong collector. I've been a philatelic professional for 
God, I guess close to 35 years. Um, writer, editor, I've uh, been involved with probably most every philatelic publication, at least in our country and uh, several in other countries as well. Um, very uh, interested in postal history, uh, EFOs, and whatever I can get a good story from. So and he's very, very knowledgeable about uh, printing techniques. Ah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Wayne, what do uh, stamp publications look for when they're uh, when you're writing articles? Well, that, that's going to depend entirely on the <clears throat> um, publication and its focus. And certainly, um, any specialized publication is going to want a fairly narrow niche uh, uh, focus on the articles that it's looking for. But bottom line, all of us, and this is speaking both as an editor and as an author, um, mostly pu publications want is something that's going to be, uh, that's not going to put you to sleep, first of all. Uh, something that's uh, relatively well written, uh, some interesting facet of the hobby somewhere along the line. Um, and, and one of the biggest things that, I, that I've railed against for many years is uh, what you see in a lot of publications is what I call Wikitelic writing. And that's where you take uh, uh, anything you can find online, whether it's a bi biography of Thomas Jefferson or um, a story about peach pits or whatever, and you write that out and just simply punctuate it with stamps. Well, collectors don't want that. They want to read about stamps. And so uh, anything I'm looking for certainly needs to have uh, stamps front and center and everything else secondarily. Hold on. You say Wikipedia. What did you? That was a really good phrase. What was that? Wikipedia? Yeah, no, this is, it's, a, it's a, a term I coined uh, about 10 years ago. I call it Wikitelics. Wikitelics, um, yeah. Yeah, and I actually haven't ended up creating a Facebook page for it too, but it, it, it's, uh, but yeah, it, 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 I thought it described very well the non-philatelic, philatelic writing that so often is seen. Yeah, I think you really have to start with the stamps or whatever you're writing about and build it from there rather than starting with a topic and, and like you said, illustrating it with stamps. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and actually, that's one of the secrets to, uh, to writing a good story, too. You know, when you sit down to, to try to write something for a publication, um, start with the stamps. You know, rather than trying to come up with some idea of what can I write about, find something that's, that's interesting and then describe that. Uh, and you've already got your, then you don't have to hunt for illustrations either. You've got that right up front. But, but start with the stamps for the covers. You write a huge amount. How do you do it? Um, sleep? What sleep? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, you know, it kind of builds on itself over the years. You know, many, many years ago when I first started, it was, it was sometimes hard to come up with uh, a solid stream of ideas and material to write about. Um, but one of the things I do, and of course, I've got you know tons of different interests too, which doesn't hurt. But as I as I go to stamp shows or or I'm on eBay or, or shopping wherever, and I find things that are interesting, I start file folders for each one of these things that might potentially make a good article, and I keep adding to that as I find more items that are related to it until it reaches what I call critical mass, and at that point, then I can turn it into a feature. 
Uh, and at this point, I've got file cabinets. I'll never live long enough to write about the stuff that I would like to. Well, what are you writing about right now? <clears throat> I'm, not, I'm not. I'm talking on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I've got several things going. I've got uh, I've got one thing I've been uh, uh, researching, particularly because it's it's highly topical right now, but the the philately of COVID, uh, there's a lot more going on than what I initially anticipated. Uh, but I'm also writing in uh, my uh, regular lens column called The Odd Lot. And this is a, about a, uh, a first day cover that has a lot of serendipity and three years of the making. Um, and so those are the things that are on the desk at the moment. That sounds like uh, it's going to be an interesting article to read. So, <laughs> I've always enjoyed your writing style, by the way. Well, thank you. I, you know, the biggest thing that, that, that again, I've tried to, uh, to do over the years is to not only make it, um, to make it accessible to anybody who wants to read. In other words, I'd, I'd like, even though I write about some pretty technical stuff, I'd like it to be interesting to someone who is not as technically inclined, or for that matter, some of the things I write about. Uh, even non-collectors find interesting, which which is kind of what I'm shooting for. Well, I know I know when I talk to younger people, the hook that usually gets them is um, the history. It's the you know they kind of like vintage stuff, and and for me, vintage is like anything from about. 1930 to maybe 1960 or 70. Even into the 80s, I've I've heard people call things from the 80s vintage. So, which you know, which clearly puts me into that range. But uh, yeah, it, things that are old start to generate interest as uh, as younger people get into their 20s and. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, it, I don't it, think it has to be old to be interesting. You, I mean, like Wayne said, he's writing about COVID. There's that's about as new as it gets. That is true. Yeah, yeah, major events. Um, but you know, it's interesting. You, you brought up the the vintage thing, and and of course, one of the one of the big discussions that all of us have periodically is why aren't there more younger people collecting and and part of that is simply because a lot of young people don't collect anything I and mean, they, they you know they rent all their services they rent their home and all this stuff but it's not because they're not interested in history um i don't know if any of you guys uh, know of dieter leader he's uh which is a fun name to say first of all but he's a, a german collector uh and he's <clears throat> very much into zeppelins and zeppelin mail and such He's a he's a younger guy. Uh, well, he's younger than me, which is most people anymore. But he uh, uh, started writing and actually blogging about uh, about zeppelins. And and what he started noticing suddenly is he was being contacted by all these uh, young people, and I say young people, and people in their twenties and thirties, uh, who were deep deep zeppelin uh, aficionados. But none of them had any idea that there were 
artifacts that they could hold and own related to them. And so he ended up turning a number of younger people into Zeppelin collectors simply because they never knew they could own a Zeppelin cover or anything like that. They were already interested in the history. They just didn't know their artifacts to go with that. Well, that's, that's a good point because, I mean, we get so little mail nowadays. Most of it's either grocery store ads or political ads or uh, not even bills so much because a lot of those come electronically too. But, um, you know, my son's 25 and every time he goes to mail a letter or a, or a birthday card to his grandmother or something like that, he has to ask me, dad, where's the stamp go? How do I address it? He just doesn't know because it's not something he's dealt with every day. And it's definitely not something that is taught in school anymore. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I recall going, you know, when I was in seventh grade, I had to take home economics and they taught cooking, how to balance a checkbook, how to write and address a letter, sewing. I mean, all those things, it was just required one of those things as an introduction, um, you know, as long, you know, and then you get into woodworking and metal and just to kind of expose you to all of that stuff. But uh, nowadays they don't even, it's not taught in school and it's definitely not something that's uh, encountered in daily life that much. Exactly. It's, it's not, it's not natural for, for, for young people at this point, many of them, uh, can get to be 12, 15 years old and never have seen a stamp. I mean, you know, all of us, when we were growing up, and, and most of you guys are younger than I am, but even still, when you're growing up, there were stamps coming into the household. And that's where we formed a lot of our collections is the stuff coming in off the mail. And if you're, if you're a kid now and you, you have absolutely no context with the postal system, um, you're not going to suddenly become interested in it unless there's some kind of a hook to, to get you. You know, and you mentioned uh, learning how to address envelopes and such. I actually have a, uh, a workbook from the public school systems back in the 1950s. And the workbook itself is all about how to write a letter, how to address it, as you said, where to put the stamp. You also can do your handwriting uh, samples in there and stuff too. And so, I mean, it, it was something that was a regular part of day-to-day -day life for, for children for you know many, many decades and is absolutely not any part of their frame of reference at this point. Well, we're gonna get into some uh, breaking news coming out. Um, is this correct? China is issuing a COVID-19 stamp? It is indeed, uh, and actually, it's been it's been uh, redesigned. <clears throat> There's, um, and hopefully, you can find it on uh, on my page or other pages in, on Facebook. Um, but the the design was first to say tenant pair of stamps, uh, and it was first going to be released on April seventh. But three days before the stamps were to be released, uh, they withdrew the entire stamp issue. Uh, because of quote design flaws and and uh, of course as transparent as china is about all the information on anything uh finding out what those design flaws hasn't been so easy uh, <clears throat> but there are several things that they were concerned about the original design as it was released down at the very bottom uh featured the, the, the little COVID virus piece with a with a ghostbusters stamp out sign 
uh, and uh, they decided that wasn't appropriate, so they replaced that with the word COVID-19. Another part of it, too, was um, they pictured uh, in the background of one of the stamps a very recognizable Wuhan uh, landmark, which uh, they felt was uh, discriminatory towards the people of Wuhan. So they removed that and put a different building in. Um, another thing, too, straddling the center perforations was a Chinese character uh, that means fight, all people fight together. And because of straddling the perforations, it was considered to be good luck because that that was split. And so, oh, yeah, yeah. So they replaced. <laughs> so they replaced that. Um, and, we know, also, we, and we know the Chinese are a little heavy on their luck stuff. So yeah, yeah, exactly. And how's that luck been working out lately? Anyway, um, so there's and there were many other design changes as well. I mean, there was a hammer and sickle that's been removed um well what about the lady who there's a lady who was looking in a microscope and now the microscope is gone and i i looked at that one and i go what's wrong with microscopes well they they changed that she's now looking at a computer screen a laptop so i i i guess it's more modernization um they removed a soldier from the design uh they've now where the chinese symbol was it was considered uh, good luck, but not because of the split. They've now replaced that with a die-cut uh, heart design between the perforations. Um, <clears throat> they changed the, uh, they, like I say, they removed the soldier. They changed uh, uh, the ambulance design. There's all kinds of minor design changes, but I, I really, uh, uh, the, the Wuhan landmark and the uh, good luck symbol and sure things I found really interesting when I found those out. Yeah, obviously a stamp designed by committee versus by an artist. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> pretty much. Um, you think they improved it or not? <laughs> um, that's a really good question, Scott. I, I, uh, I, I, you know, to the casual observer, you, you wouldn't really notice a difference. You know, obviously a collector's going to look for everything <laughs> possible. It, the, the stamps still look roughly the same. Uh, is when they were first released, or the design was first released. So you again, you wouldn't notice a huge change, but a lot of little, uh, certainly political changes and uh, some of the other design considerations. I have no idea where they came from. Now, is it true that Incidentally, the CDC is warning all... Americans not to lick the stamp? If people didn't hear that, he said, uh, are people not supposed to lick the stamp? <laughs> Certainly don't rub it all over your face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did, by the way, did, have, did all of you guys save your, uh, your piece of United States COVID postal history? Uh-oh. Every person in the United States should have received the uh, president's 15 days to slow the spread postcard somewhere in your junk mail. Uh, I checked I my mail today. I'll have to look. <laughs> I got to look for that, too. I've received about six or seven of them. Oh, you're rich. You're rich. So, well, every time I go to my P.O. box, there's at least two in there. <laughs> really? Yeah. Mine, mine was too far damaged to save, and I haven't seen any on eBay yet. So I'm, I've asked Those my dark blue ones? Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll put a couple aside. <laughs> All righty. That should be that's an interesting little piece of postal history. 
Also, that president's letter. Also bringing up a little postal history, remember that there was a SARS stamp that was issued. And uh, that stamp today is still worth about 30 bucks. For I think the face value equivalent was about 12 cents. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's become a good stamp. Um, I also have learned about some some really interesting uh, markings out there. There, there are now stamp, official stamps out from, of course, Iran was the first one. Uh, <clears throat> Vietnam has a pair. There's a semi-postal from Switzerland. Uh, Island Man has a set of eight now. Of course, there's the China. Uh, they're scheduled from Sri Lanka, Indonesia. Um, there's one from Lebanon. They don't know if it's official yet or not. Uh, one from Bosnia. Uh, but then there's meters now and postmarks. Uh, but there's even now auxiliary markings. And the two that I found most interesting, there's uh, North Korea has delayed markings. They've been putting on some mail. Um, Germans are actually returning and putting a return to sender marking on. But both Italy and China have a form of uh, fumigated mail uh, markings. would love to, to obtain an example of one of those. I've also heard um, that Australia is returning mail that's going overseas, um, saying like it's undeliverable. If you watch some of the guys complaining about their eBay lots, um, when they're like uh, from America, it takes about four to six weeks for the surface mail to get to Australia. And by that time, people have already filed for refunds because they haven't got their item within the allotted time. And eBay is automatically refunding those. And uh, and then the item arrives and most, uh, apparently some people are not uh, being entirely honest and they're not paying for it even though they got the item. So the seller's out the item, the fees and the shipping. And uh, eBay's, eBay hasn't really addressed that yet well i'm going through that i got a little dirty mail from uh ebay saying that uh a large a larger than normal number of your lots are being lost in the mail and it is but you know i i went from like maybe half a percent to like one percent which admittedly you know i live i send a lot of items so you know five or six items and I know I send them on time and I know they go out. I think that there is just an incredible slowness right to the post office. And you sell stuff on eBay. Have you noticed this? Um, yes, I have noticed a few things being uh, a little late. Did you get did you get the dirty letter from eBay? No, I did not. Oh, OK. Well, I feel left out. <laughs> You're doing better than I am. <laughs> well, and of course, the United States also is returning uh, a lot of mail from, I think it's like 84 different countries now, most of them smaller, because we can't get the mail to them. So we should see return to sender markings on a lot of things going overseas. And even the things that do go overseas, most of it's going by ship rather than air now. Well, it'll be interesting to see if they add a COVID-19 marking in addition to the return to sender. Yeah, I'd love to see that. Well, Sean just sold a really large, uh, medium-sized flat rate box of uh, stamp mounts to Singapore. And I'm kind of concerned about that because, you know, who knows what's going to go on with Singapore. Yeah, that may even be one of the countries that, uh, that they're refusing right now. 
Mm. Yeah, I have to double check on that one. Well, speaking of the uh, the slow mail, <laughs> there was an article written recently in the Wall Street Journal by Gary McDougal on May 5th, and its title is Phase Out, Don't Bail Out the Post Office. In part reads, nostalgia shouldn't keep alive an agency that is obsolete. A small blessing of the lockdown is that we've been spared the usual task of throwing half or more of the day's mail into the trash. As advertising dries up, the junk mail simply doesn't get sent. It goes on further to say how the post office might or might not get a bailout. Um, what do you all think about the nostalgia comment? Well, and, first and of all, I before, before we get into that, I have to say this is this is some of my mail. I don't think the advertising is phased out. I had to look. To, I had to look to see if I got the postcard. I did not. I uh, I don't think that the I think the post office still is necessary, especially now, um, and uh, because you can't, uh, you know, granted Amazon and, and UPS and FedEx are they all deal with a lot of packages, but you know there there still is a segment that that requires uh, smaller items like letters. I, I, I think it's necessary. I think it probably should be downsized, but not eliminated. Well, I don't think it should be downsized. I think that normal market activity would determine the level of the post office. I think one of the drawbacks of the post office is they are not allowed to shrink or grow as a normal business would shrink or grow. They're, they're stuck with a certain size and if that size is too small, then they have problems hiring. And if it's too big, which I believe is the case right now, then they have too many people and it's difficult to get rid of people or to downsize. Yeah, I think the unions have blocked that. But uh, I, I know with our local post office, um, we receive packages and they'll be signed for, but they don't seem to make it into our PO box for two to three days because the sorting is uh, just taking abnormally long. Yeah, like days long. Yeah. Oh. yeah. I go to the post office almost every day, and I've noticed over the past month that the lines are longer, not because of spacing, but because there's more people in line. And I don't understand why there are more people going to the post office, but they're there. I think that the line is just as long as it always was, but because everybody is six feet apart, it makes the line look huge. And I'm oh, right. It's like, like, holy crap. There are more people selling online. <laughs> too, yeah. I think we've all. You need a cough. You need a cough button. <laughs> I think we've yeah. also seen an increase in mail overall because I know in my house we are sending letters more than we are emails and Facebook and those messages. So it's been interesting to see the increase of outgoing regular mail. So I think COVID-19 has an influence on people buying stamps. Well, you know, when you're at home and you have a lot less things to do, somehow you manage to find the time to sit down and write a letter versus sitting down on the computer and emailing a letter. Well, and the, the other thing I've noticed as well is, at least based on our neighbors, is being home, they're doing an awful lot more purchasing all kinds of stuff online. 
Yeah. yeah it's down to the Postal Service to deliver those. Um, oh, one other point I, I definitely wanted to make, too. The, the author of that opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal, by the way, is a director with UPS. So I, I take his comments with a grain of salt. <laughs> yeah, of, course, of course, that's not mentioned in the article, right? Not at all, not until the all printed the very end. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think it's interesting that they call the post office nostalgic. Because honestly, I recall, and it's not because I'm really old, it wasn't that long ago, when credit cards, when they started issuing a lot of credit cards, everybody said, oh, well, with all these credit cards, there's going to be no use for money and money is going to disappear and money has not disappeared. Money is still every place. I would absolutely agree with that. Um, I can say my ex-husband definitely said at one point we won't need cash at all. It'll all be plastic and we haven't seen that. And I don't think we're going to see that with the post office becoming obsolete either. Not I think they're trying to push us into cashless. I think that there is a benefit for people to use cashless. I mean, here at PSE, we're cashless realistically. I mean, a few people give us cash, but, uh, you know, when you're buying stuff like on eBay, you're not going to mail a person a $10 bill or whatever. But if you go to McDonald's, I have seen people whip out their credit card to buy a burger at McDonald's, but it's not common. Well, you know, what, one, of the, uh, one of the challenges I've had with my son is getting him to at least carry a small amount of cash with him because uh, you never know in an emergency. I mean, if the power goes out in the middle of the day because it's too hot and everybody's running their air conditioning or, uh, you know, for whatever reason, you know, some idiot gets in a car accident, takes out the light pole and, uh, you know, if you want to buy something, it's, you know, sometimes it's better to have cash. The biggest problem with that I've seen, though, is that almost everything now is run by a barcode and nobody actually in a store knows how much something costs. So if the power's out, it's not going to matter if you have cash or not, because they'll just be closed. <laughs> yeah, that is true. <laughs> yeah, but I think the laws right now still require them to post the, the prices on the shelf. So you know as a last resort you can walk over to the shelf and say see it cost me a dollar 99. yeah you're going to do a, a, uh, a price check on a hundred items in your cart <laughs> well you know sometimes it's an emergency <clears throat> well i will point out but, that if you buy at a stamp show with a credit card or something you get terrible deals I don't think so you're pretty much expected to pay by cash. Well, and that is one of the things. I mean, if you're accepting credit cards, you're still paying extra points on that and uh, for the credit card company. Yeah, in most most dealers I know of, um, <laughs> a lot of things are priced so that the uh, tax is already figured into the price. So when they say a hundred bucks, you pay a hundred bucks. They pay the tax and uh, if you want to pay by credit card, then they kind of add in the credit card fee. And so you're going to pay more than a hundred dollars on that. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's just at least at stamp shows, that's the normal uh, method of doing business. 
but there are dealers who do take credit cards. I believe in Vegas they would say you're paying the vig. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, one of the things I've seen is when you give a whomever in a store $20 for a $13.73 item. If the computer doesn't tell you, tell them that it's $6.27, they can't count your change back for you. It's, yeah. you know, it's like basic math. <laughs> yeah. I've seen that many times. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure a lot of people have seen the, uh, the online thing about that. Well, he had a sixth grade education. And then you see the test that they had to take to pass the sixth grade. You know, are, are we are we bashing millennials here? Is this a millennial bashing part of our show? No, you know, you can't laugh at somebody who passed the sixth grade 150 years ago because that was a darn hard test. <laughs> <laughs> They're just just the, uh, the the quality of the education at the grade level is. Uh, Quite a bit lower now than it was back then. So, um, you know, you know those those people back, you know, ten or twelve years old, they were math geniuses compared to some of the tenth and twelfth graders that we have today. So, it was just a yeah, fact but of back life. then you back then you did live past uh, twenty years past your sixth grade. So. Oh yeah, back then. I People died at like the age of 17 or whatever. Isn't that the case? <laughs> so we have an email from Dan that we received for tips on sending a stamp to be identified and certified as a Taylor A55, which would be to whom it concerns. I have this stamp, a Taylor A55, and it looks to me like it is a hard paper. I would like to send it in, but I'm not an expert and I don't want to waste your time. I think the paper is so much smoother and transparent than the other stamps I have. And uh, he sent a few pics, which I don't have. And I am comparing it to three 179s. I also compared it to the 185. It's pretty transparent to it. The one on the left is question is the one on the left is the questionable one. The one on the right is a 179. That is most likely the left one, so I would compare it to. The stamp community website I shared it with have no idea either. They think I think that I think they think the stamp community website I shared it with have no idea either, and also think it could be a 185. <coughs> Also, looking at the perforations, the perfs are really sharper than the 179s. In the book I have on Identification Guide to U.S. Stamps by Charles Micarelli, it says the way to identify a 181 is in the paper. Are they correct? And that's what I think needs to be done. Please tell me what you think. Thanks, Dan. Well, we can talk for a minute about how to identify hard and soft paper. Well, the first thing I would recommend doing is uh, picking up a, a stamp that is normally only found on hard paper, <laughs> like maybe a one uh, seven cent banknote, 
Um, they do exist on soft paper, special printings, but um, they're extremely rare. So the chances of you having one are uh, extremely slim. So that's a good stamp to choose for a hard paper. Um, and it doesn't matter whether it's you know, 149 or 160 or even a grilled stamp, it doesn't really matter. Uh, just because it's, uh, like I said, it's, it's one that's normally found on hard, hard paper only. Um, and then maybe pick something like a 206, which is the one cent. And um, well, actually, that's probably not, uh, make it a 212, because uh, for that design, it can only be soft paper. And those, those are good examples to compare it to. And when you hold them up to the light uh, and backlight, hold them up to the light, a, a fairly strong desk lamp works just fine. And uh, the, the hard paper is gonna have a much darker, uh, it's gonna block more of the light. So uh, the, the hard paper is gonna be, um, it's gonna appear to be thinner. Um, and that's probably gonna help you with four out of five at least. Uh, let's see, now whether it's a special printing or not, um that is going to be much more uh, difficult to tell but your uh the impression of the stamp is going to have to be um nice and sharp um almost as if it was printed from a brand new plate uh it's obviously going to have to have the hard paper and um so what does hard paper versus soft paper mean what do, what does hard paper look like and what does soft paper look like? Um, well, they, they also, the paper itself is also oh. far more calendar than the soft paper. Yeah, the, uh, the wood pulp that the paper's made from, that's what I'm, the, um, so there, there's more sizing or, or adhesive added to the wood pulp to make the paper so that it doesn't completely disintegrate when you handle it or throw it in water, things like that. Um, when you, if you if it's a used stamp and you throw it in water and soak it, um, yes, some of the sizing will come out, but generally not enough to uh, make the stamp fall apart unless you leave it there for you know days. Mm -hmm. um, so the hard paper tends to be slightly thinner, uh, and uh, it's more translucent. Um, and one thing that you should learn to do if you're dealing a lot with these things is find somebody to teach you how to do the snap test. Um, that's also another good uh, determining way to tell. Uh, basically, if you hold the stamp in the middle of the stamp and you want to basically just lightly bend it and then listen to it as your finger runs off the side of the uh, side of the stamp and uh, a hard paper will snap a little bit more and a, a soft paper will have more of a thud to it, uh, more of a dull uh, sound to it. There are intermediate papers that, uh, that can give even the experts a little bit of trouble and cause disagreement. Um, but I would say the vast majority of the stamps would fall into one camp or the other. Um, uh, the later papers also are thicker, have more 
texture to them. We call it mesh. Uh, and uh, that can be seen again when you backlight it. The hard papers tend to be, like you said, a lot smoother and uh, more consistent when you hold them up to the light. Um, and uh, once you kind of get good, when you use loop and look at the paper, you can uh, see more of the fibers. Um, the hard paper looks more like it was pressed a lot harder. And uh, the soft paper tends to, the fibers tend to be more easily, um, they look looser. Exactly, and that's, and that's one of the, where I was going before too, is because the hard paper has been calendared much more, it actually, the paper fibers are actually, they actually are pressed and they're much closer together, uh, which is what makes it feel stiffer. But, uh, but under, under even as little as 20 power magnification, you can really see a pretty big difference between the paper fibers of a hard paper and a soft paper. Now, now I have to ask a quick question because we've used it twice and I know some of our listeners won't know and even I don't know. What is calendared? I'm glad you asked that because that was going to be my second question. <laughs> Calendaring is as the, uh, the paper is being formed from the pulp into into paper. by the way there's a a really technical term for for paper pulp does anybody know what that is blurry i know the latin for it pulpus papyrus no no it's 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 called stuff that's the real stuff, <laughs> stuff. Yes. so so as the as the stuff is traveling through the paper machine to to tr actually turn it into paper once uh the fibers have been kind of bonded and it's and it's forming uh, calendaring takes place with uh, with rollers, steel rollers going through, and it's basically pressing the paper fibers together, uh, which also part, partly helps drain the water from the paper, but it is also pressing the, uh, the uh, fibers much, much closer together and, and forming a, a stiff paper or hard paper as opposed to soft paper. The, um, a, a glassine, for example, if you, the texture of glassine uh, comes from the fact that it's 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 super calendared and not fragilistic SPF now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the olden days, when uh, and I love uh, talking about the 1851 issue, and they didn't run it through, uh, steel rollers; they put it basically inside of like a grape press, and they squished them and squash the water out of it and uh nobody knows really what occurred to create these hard and soft papers other than you know they just it was a process of you know what they the technology of the time but uh one thing that i would like to comment on and i have had a lot of people give me stamps and say is this hard paper or soft paper and you look at it and it's like still on piece or it has you know, of five liters of hinges on the back, or it's covered with dirt. You know, before you can figure out if it's hard or soft paper, you gotta soak it and clean off the back so that you can hold it up to the light and see through it. I I have countless stories where people have come in and I can't tell because there's so much stuff on the back of the stamp. I I do like what you said before though, where you get a two cent green Washington banknote. And you get a two cent uh, Andrew Jackson Brown 
bank notes. And then you're sure to have a hard paper and a soft paper to compare with. There you go. And then if you have those two stamps, uh, the rest of it, you know, comparing them, hold them up to the light, look through them. And uh, it's fairly obvious as long as you know what your benchmark is that you're looking at. And if you have, like I said, a brown Andrew Jackson and a green George Washington stamp, you've got the two types. I had a stamp uh, returned, and that was the reason uh, why they said that the uh, it did not glow the proper glow. Uh, and it, it was a, a ten dollar stamp, and basically they said it was, uh, you know, it was. I said it was hard paper, and they said it was soft, or, or vice versa. I can't remember, but uh, yeah, I've never heard that actually. Well, it's not foolproof, um, but like I said, it, it's gonna, you know, it, it's another tool in the toolbox if you kind of can't make up your mind. Um, yeah, one, it's definitely not foolproof, just as the, the snap test is not foolproof. Uh, I have never been able to do the snap test personally. It takes practice and experience mostly. Yeah, or, or different fingers or different audio perception or something. <laughs> well, you know, when we go back to work, I can certainly sit down and we can practice with a bunch of stamps. I got a better idea. Let's not. <laughs> hey, it's up to you. You're the one who wants to learn. I'll just hold them to the light. <laughs> one uh, one quick word of caution, though, about using ultraviolet light to try to determine paper type um, is better for an unused stamp than a used stamp because any stamp that has been soaked, um, it depends on what it's been soaked in. If there's been any kind of detergent used to help clean it up, anything. Uh, it's going to behave very, very differently under ultraviolet light. Good point. But uh, the other thing with an unused stamp is if it has gum on the back, then ultraviolet test doesn't work from the back. That's true, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom, should we go out on a high note here? Well, we need your help. Join the podcast. Membership is $10 for a lifetime membership. We need your help to keep us going because nothing on the internet is free to do, including setting up our telephone connections. If you are an APS member, send us your APS membership number as well. Our address is P.O. Box 539-309, Henderson, Nevada, 89053. Your support is very much appreciated. You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, episode number 256. This was Tom. This was guys. This was Wayne. This was Mark. This was Becca. This was Tony. <laughs> I got a lot of editing to do here. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening. Well, kids, that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank Sideshow Mel, Corporal Punishment, Tina Ballerina, oh, and from Not Landing, Miss Donna Mills. Oh, she was a sport. We've had lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of fun. But now the time has come to go. If this still cop was found dead in his bed tomorrow, I'd be in heaven still doing this show. See you some other time! Yeah! <laughs> <sighs> it's a descendant. It's 
Thank you for joining us. This has been Cash, Scott, Tom, and I'm your host, Dawn. Continue the conversation at Stamp Show Here Today on Facebook. You can ask us questions, see pictures of the stamps, make comments, and add to the conversation on Facebook. You can also ask the experts your stamp questions at bluepaper at gradingmatters.com. You can listen to all of our past podcasts at stampshowheretoday.com, podbean.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And as always, keep collecting. This episode of Stamp Show Here Today is brought to you by the Philatelic Book of Secrets, the book that teaches you about repurse, regums, color varieties, and much more. Get yours for $10 at www.philatelicsecrets.com today. Worst episode ever. Oh, not even close.